Well, as Linda read earlier, we are in Isaiah 42. If you can get there, please. Isaiah 42, and we're not going to get much further than just the first few verses in this passage. Um, Our Advent series is called Hope in Dark Times, and Isaiah is going to provide the truth for us over this four-week period and then up to Christmas morning itself. I think the world is in dark times. I think people need hope. And these these chapters in Isaiah, particularly chapters 40 to 55, just have got bucket loads of this stuff. It's hard to know exactly what passages to work on, but we're going for 42, 1 to 9 this morning. Let me give you just the context so that you can so you can get the impact of the first verse of chapter 42. Let me give you a few verses from chapter 41. What God does several times in Isaiah is he calls for a court case. You get it over and over again. This, this sort of form of speech is set up in Isaiah where God calls um, people to attend and he calls witnesses to come and he calls people to set forth their claims. And he does it in chapter 41 of Isaiah in verse, what verse are we here? Verse 21, he says, And he's talking to the idols here because remember it's idolatry is one of the things that has caused God's people to end up in exile. And God is now going to try to expose the idols for what they are. And he says in 41.21 the invitation comes present your case. The court is in session. Idols come along. Those of you who believe in idols come along. Present your case says the Lord. Set forth your arguments says Jacob's king. And he challenges them to to give uh, an example of a time when they have foretold the future and it has come to pass. So verse 22, tell us you idols what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. So go back to the past, idols and people who believe in idols, and tell us something that you predicted that actually came to pass. And he goes on in the next verse to say, or declare the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. So go back to the past and tell us something that came true that you said. You can't do it. Tell us what's going to happen in the future because these idols, the people that believed in them, spent a lot of their time telling the future. That all sorts of wacky, wacky things that they did uh, with animals, really messy stuff that we'll not talk about before Sunday dinner, and just weird practices that they went through in order to foretell the future. And it was all rubbish, you know. And he basically says to them, do something good, do something bad, just do something so that we know that you're real. And of course they can't. The idols can't do it. These, these, these idol worshippers that love to predict the future, they would do it a bit like a horoscope. wouldn't recommend reading them. But if you ever have, you will find that they are so vague that they're always right. <laughs> they're just completely open-ended that they can be interpreted any possible way. And it was the same with these guys as they predicted the future. There was a vagueness, there was a fudge factor that it made it look like they were right. But God was specific. God predicted in Isaiah 39 that the exile would happen. 
years and years before it happened. He also predicted that there would be a return from exile. And as I said last week, that is something which was unheard of in the ancient world. You did not go into exile in a different nation and then come back out again. It just didn't happen. So for God to predict this and for it actually to come to pass was, was a pretty big deal. And he says, in summary, he says to the idols and those who worship them, you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. And then the last verse of Isaiah 41, he says, behold, that's a great Bible word, which in the modern translations, which I prefer, has been sort of pushed to one side. And instead of saying behold, they'll say something, something different. But I love the word behold. There's a weightiness to it. And all it is, is a command to look at something, to pay attention. He says at the end of chapter 41, <laughs> Behold, look at them, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing, their images are but wind and confusion. Behold, the idols are false. And then chapter 42 starts with, Behold, my servant. I'm going to give you an alternative. I'm going to give you something else to look at, to fix your gaze upon, because fixing your gaze upon the idols and the other things in which people put their trust has led to nothing but exile and despair. And now he says, you've, you've beheld them, now behold this. And he presents this mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord. Um, Isaiah has used this term before talking about Israel and it can be a wee bit confusing. We'll not go into it this morning, uh, but it can be a wee bit confusing when you're reading Isaiah and you read the word servant. It can be hard to know sometimes exactly who Isaiah is referring to. In simple terms, if you read about a servant who is on a mission, it's Jesus. If you read about a servant who is on the receiving end of God's care and protection, it's Israel. And there are four songs in this section of Isaiah called the servant songs. And they are all about Jesus. They're all about Jesus. The perfect Israel, the perfect son of God, the perfect servant. And it's made clear, I don't have it on the screen, but if you read in Matthew chapter 12, you will find these verses at the start of Isaiah 42 quoted about Jesus. So we're talking about Jesus this morning, okay? We're in Isaiah. We are probably 750 years before Jesus' birth. And Isaiah is writing a song about Jesus. Also made clear about the fact that it says in Isaiah 42.1, I will put my spirit on him. Again, that's something that we'll see a bit later on is is referring to Jesus. So what I want to look at this morning is four things about this servant. What will he do according to this short passage? The first thing the servant will do is he will bring justice. What do you think of when you hear the word justice? Um, For me, um, the word justice, and this probably caused me a lot of confusion over the years reading the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. The word justice for me always meant somebody did something wrong, they got caught, And they got what's coming to them. That's justice. Now that is one aspect of justice. 
There was a horrific murder a few nights ago in Newry. If the people who did it are caught and are punished, then people would say justice is done. And if they get away with it, people would say that is injustice that they've got away with it. And there's a lot of injustice in this world. And there's been a lot of injustice in this land over the last few decades or so. But justice is bigger than that. You know, at the start of Isaiah 42, here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. This word justice in Hebrew is a class word. It is mishpat. Say mishpat. Mishpat. Mishpat is the word for justice. And it does not just mean the bad guy has got caught and thrown in prison. How we love that when that happens in a movie, in a, in a news story, in the real world, whatever it is, when the bad guy is caught and justice is done. But this is, this is bigger than that. What this Hebrew word mishpat means is God's order for life. It is basically everything being done the way God wants it done. Justice is things done according to God's will and purpose and character. It's a huge word. It's another one of these occasions when we're in the scriptures and there's something that in our thinking and in English can be made small and narrow and limited. But in the original sense, it is actually huge. Mishpat is huge. Whenever you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. You're asking God for mishpat. You're asking God for justice in this world, for things in this world to be done God's way. God's way. Not just for the bad guy to get caught, but for God's right way of doing things to come into this world. And the lack of justice in Israel was one of the reasons they went into exile. Not only their idolatry, but their injustice. Now, you might remember, you probably don't, and it's okay. Late June, early July, we started a, 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 a three-part series that went on for 15 weeks called The Rebuilders. It was meant to be a three-part series at the start. And we started with Amos chapter 5 and looked at why the people went into exile in the first place. And in verses 23 and 24, God says to his people, Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river. God says, don't waste your breath singing to me if you are not going to carry out justice. Let justice roll on like a river. In Amos 5 verse 12, we read about those who oppress the innocent take bribes, and deprive the poor of justice. All right? This was a big deal for the people of God, and they dropped the ball. They mistreated the poor. They mistreated the weak, the outcast. They oppressed those people. They did not pursue justice for those people. Jesus came to bring justice, to put things right in the world. To do things God's way. If you've ever got yourself a free half hour, go for a wee browse on the, on the web and look, look at things that 
Christianity has given to the world that frequently Christianity is not acknowledged for. Hospitals are a Christian thing. There's a great article on the Christian Medical Fellowship website explaining the influence of Christianity over the past 2,000 years in the establishing of hospitals and hospice care and medicine and science itself. Universities, those are a Christian thing. The, the, the explosion in knowledge and study and scientific research and medical study, particularly in the 1800s, a lot of that came hot on the heels of a dude on a horse and the dude's name was John Wesley. You probably know the name of his horse. <laughs> but the, the revival that came under the preaching of John Wesley and others spurred on this hunger for knowledge and for study and for bringing God's justice and for going to the poor and the sick and bringing them healing because that's what Jesus did. Christianity brought, brought those things. Christianity brings rightness to the world and justice to the world. Christianity abolished slavery in the 1800s under William Wilberforce. There's a superb film about it called Amazing Grace by the life of William Wilberforce. That was Christianity that did that. Christianity abolished segregation between blacks and whites in the southern states in particular of the USA in the 1960s under Martin Luther King. That was Christianity did that. That was justice coming through God's people. Things, a thing that was wrong being put right. This legacy that, that, that Christianity has. Christianity put value on children in the Roman Empire when the treatment of children was horrific. Just horrific. If somebody had a child, had a baby that they didn't want, they literally threw it out. They, they had a nice word for it. They, they called it exposure. In other words, they exposed the unwanted child to the elements, the weather and whatever, and just that was it. And archaeologists have found just horrendous remains all over the place in the ancient Roman Empire, unwanted children. Christianity changed that. Jesus changed that. He said, bring the children to me. Give them value. Let me bless them. He said that you've got to receive the kingdom of heaven like a little child. He brought justice. He brought what was right. Christianity gave dignity to women in a world where they were silenced and refused education. That was the world that Jesus came into. And he rocked it by having women among his followers and those who financially supported him and those who were the last at the tomb on Good Friday and the first at the tomb on Easter Sunday and the first one to see him raised from the dead. Jesus gave dignity to women in a world where they had no dignity. And one of the most effective Christian global organizations that you may have heard of that continues to work on behalf of slaves and children and women is called International Justice Mission. It's not just because they have lawyers working for them and they seek to, 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 you know, to support poor people who are being oppressed in court. It is that they want to bring the justice of God to the world, the rightness of God so that there are no slaves and there are not children oppressed and there are not women silenced and held down and put into trafficking and all sorts of things. Followers of Jesus bring justice to the world. They bring mishpat. They put things right. And the question is, what are the things that are not right in our community? 
If I say that, that as a community, Jesus calls us to bring justice to this town, that does not mean we strap on an AK-47 and go looking for drug dealers. That's not the justice he's looking for, okay? What are the things in this town that Jesus would look at and say, that's not right. That is not my way. The way that person is treated is not my way. It's not right. The way that person feels about themselves is not right. The lack that that person has in their home, in their cupboards, in their fridge, in their oil tank is not right. What are the things that Jesus will look at and say, that's not right? That person who is on their own, who never has any company, who doesn't have a community to gather with on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday night or any other time, that's not right. And God's people are called to bring justice, and it's not easy. We need wisdom. We can't do what Martin Luther King did. There's no point. <laughs> not relevant now. We can't do what William Wilberforce did. But we can be inspired by them and we can seek God and ask for wisdom. We need to be praying. That's why we get together on a Tuesday night. And one of the things we need to be praying for is, God, show us what to do. What way does this church, this community need to change, need to put different things in place, need to position ourselves in the community so at this time we can bring the justice, the rightness of Jesus to this community? And put right things that are wrong. That doesn't mean we are the moral police that we go about wagging the finger and saying, oh, the way you're living is wrong and you're bad and you're going to hell. No, no, that's not what, when I say about putting things right, that's not what I mean. What I mean is getting along people as we're going to see Jesus doing and seeing them restored. Not seeing them pushed further down, but seeing them restored. What are the things in this town that are not right? Where is the injustice that needs justice and you might think this morning you know the christmas tree's up on the corner it's advent david you should be talking about shepherds and angels and and all those and i love all that i love it i'm, I'm doing an advent reader at night with samuel and i'm doing an advent reader in the morning on my own and i love going back to those early chapters of matthew and luke and thinking about the story and all of those things i love that maybe next year we'll preach about that again but right now in this season in this Advent, people need justice. They need hope. Their lives are wrong. Again, don't hear me wrongly in that when I say their lives are wrong. It's not condemning. It's that it's not God's way. God looks at them and sings over them and says, I want you to live my way. And I want you to be fully restored. They need hope. Chapter 42, verse 4 talks about how how he will bring forth justice. And at the end, it talks about the islands, the peoples will put their hope in him. And if we as a community are going to talk seriously about putting things right in our own area and in our own town, we've got to start in our own lives in the small things. Does your life overflow with justice? Do you do things right? I remember saying to somebody uh, a while back, um, that I had cancelled Sky TV and had cancelled BT Sport and, and those things because just money was vanishing at high speed and it wasn't worth it. And, and the person said to me, ah, but you can, you, can, you can go and see such and such and he'll sell you a wee, a wee USB thing that you plug into your TV. 
He says, you get one of those, and it's already been, it's maybe, he says, well, I don't know what price, I'm not going to tell you in case you go looking for one, but he says, it's not very dear, and you just pay for it once, and you stick it into your TV, and you'll get Sky Sports, and you'll get BT Sports, everything will just come to it, and you don't have to pay anything more. And I just said to him, but that's not right. And he said to me, but these companies, Sky and BT, they're ripping people off. And I'm like, well, that's okay. If it's too expensive, don't pay it, but don't steal it. It's not right. Do we have justice in our own lives and how we do things before we talk about bringing justice to others? But we have a problem here. Because in in Isaiah 42, we've got a servant who's going to bring justice. The problem that we have is servants don't bring justice. (laughs) That's not the role of a servant. According to Proverbs 29, by justice... A king gives a country stability. We've got a servant. (laughs) What good is that? How how can a servant bring justice? Especially if, according to Isaiah 42, verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. That's what the king does. He has to go and shout and drown out every voice in order to establish justice. But we've got this servant who's not going to do those things, and yet he's supposedly going to bring justice. How can he do that if he's not a king? And the answer to that is that the servant is also the king. Over the years, Bible scholars have struggled with this passage in the Old Testament and these songs in Isaiah in terms of how, to, how do we connect the servant of Isaiah with the promised king? a descendant of David who is going to come and rule. We've got these two different people. What, what do we do? And what happened then when Jesus was baptized was literally earth-shattering for the first people who heard it and saw it. Because when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended on him, just like Isaiah 42, 1. The Spirit of the Lord descended on him like a dove and settled on him. And a voice from heaven says... This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, in that phrase, God is actually quoting two passages from the Old Testament. The first one, this is my son, comes from Psalm 2, which is a psalm about the king. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree He said to me, you are my son. So when God speaks at Jesus' baptism and says, this is my son, he's saying, this is your king, by quoting this psalm. And the other part of of what God says over Jesus at his baptism comes from our passage, Isaiah 42. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. This is my son, This is your king. This is the one in whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. This is the servant. They are the same person. And prior to that, nobody realized that they were going to be the same person. But now they know that the king and the suffering servant standing there in front of them, dripping wet in the Jordan River, he is the one who is going to bring justice. How is he going to bring justice? The third thing, and there's four altogether if you're counting. The third thing that the servant does, we have seen that the servant brings justice. 
The servant is also the king. And the servant knows how to restore the human heart. The servant knows how to restore the human heart. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now this is not the way a king functioned in the ancient world. If a king or a Caesar wanted to establish his justice in an area, he would do it through the gleeful use of power to smash and rebuild. There was a thing whenever Rome conquered the ancient world, there was a thing called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was peace that came with a sword. Rome established peace. They would come to a a foreign territory. They would promise peace. And the way that they would establish peace is by wiping out everyone who did not agree with Rome and did not bow the knee. That's how Rome established peace. That's how Rome established their idea of justice. Not so with this servant. He will not even break off a reed, a stalk of a plant that is bent over and cracked. Rather, he will support it and strengthen it. He will not snuff out a dimly flickering wick. Plenty of candles lit these days. And when you go and you blow out the candle and you have that little red bit at the end of the wick that's still glowing and there's lots of smoke coming off it and you think if that thing keeps on doing that, the smoke alarms are going to go off. And what do you do? You lick your finger, you lick your thumb and you give it a wee squeeze and you snuff it out. And some of us maybe feel a bit like the smoldering wick. The fire is dimmed. There's not much light. There's not much heat. Just the tiniest little red glow and some smoke coming off it. And you think, Jesus is fed up with me and surely he's just going to lick the finger and thumb and snuff me out. And he says, no. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Rather, what he'll do with it is he'll trim it and he'll rest it more deeply in the oil so that it will burn. And like the word justice from a few uh, slides ago, the word bruise in English just doesn't cut it. If I, you know, fill in the blank, it's blank a bruise. The blank is usually the word just. Somebody falls and we get a look at it and say, ah, it's just a bruise. A bruise in our thinking is a minor thing. It's a small thing. It's not a big deal. There's no blood. You know, there's nothing's broken. It's just a bruise. That's the way we talk about bruise. But in Hebrew, the word that's used here is, is to crush. To grievously oppress. That's what the word bruise means. It is like when you have received a blow. You've been hit. You've been struck. And there might not be an external obvious indication of damage. But a vital internal organ has been badly damaged. That's what the word is talking about. Sometimes it would be used and translated as a death blow. A hit, an impact so hard that even though it doesn't necessarily break the skin, it causes internal damage that can lead to death. Crushing, 
That's what the word is. Anybody feel like a bruised reed? A crushed reed. Never going to bear fruit again like that that little glow at the end of the wick of the candle. You're going to be putting out candles probably every day for the next month. Every time you see that glow, you think of Jesus. He doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick. And he doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't look at it and say, well, that's done. It's bent over and it's cracked and it's never going to produce any fruit or any grain. No, no, no. He will straighten it up. He will straighten it up. He will do what no one else can do. He will take that which is crushed and instead of discarding it, he can heal it so that it will once again bring forth grain. That which is about to go out and produce no more light, he will fan it into flame. We do a thing in chemistry. Sorry to talk about chemistry on a Sunday. It seems wrong. But we do a thing in chemistry where if you take a wee stick, a wee piece of wood called a splint, some of you, this will bring back sweet memories. <laughs> and if it's, if it's burning, if there's a flame on the splint and you blow it out and it's still glowing, does anybody, don't answer, does anybody remember what you put it into and it'll relight again? Oxygen. <laughs> Oxygen is correct. You take something that's glowing that, that there's no way of getting it to relight and you put it in a different atmosphere that is more pure that has got more oxygen in it and suddenly it sparks back into life again and it begins to burn. That's what Jesus does with the smoldering wick. He puts it in a different atmosphere. He breathes on it. He fans it into flame and it burns again. It burns again. Jesus loves the hopeless cases. He loves fragile people. He loves people who have been beaten and battered and bruised. And maybe there's nothing visible on the outside, but inside they are dying. They've had a death blow. A crushing blow. There's no cut. There's no blood. But they've been hit hard. And inside they feel like they're dying. And he knows what to do with them. The servant knows how to restore the human heart. If you take a person who is struggling and you, and you take them to the doctor, the doctor may prescribe a certain thing. And if you take them to a psychologist, the psychologist may talk to them and advise a course of action. And if you take them to a pastor, a pastor might then say something different again. You'll get all these different opinions from maybe from different people. Jesus knows exactly how to restore the human heart. And when you read the Gospels, that's why you don't see a one-size-fits-all approach Jesus will encounter a woman at a well and will treat her in one particular way. And he will encounter a grubby little tax collector who's been stealing from people for years and he'll treat him differently. And then he'll encounter a rich young ruler and he'll treat him differently. He knows exactly what each individual human heart needs. Here's a couple more verses just to encourage you before I move on to the last point. In Isaiah 61, the verse that Jesus quoted about himself in Luke chapter 4, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's what you call justice. 
when the brokenhearted in a community get bound up, justice has been done. God's right way is being established in their pain. In Psalm 147, love it, about the exiles, the Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the exiles, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. A couple hundred years ago, there was a, a Puritan-type dude called Richard Sibbs. And he wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. And in this, he, he addressed the fact that sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Sometimes we, no one else condemns us. Satan condemns us. And we condemn ourselves. We put ourselves down. The battlefield of the mind where, where we, we start to beat ourselves up. And Sibs observed that and, and writing on this passage, and I'll put this in more modern terms in a second. Here's what he said. If Christ be so merciful not to break me, I will not break myself by despair. To put that into modern lingo, if Jesus doesn't crush me, then I won't crush myself. All right, church? If Jesus doesn't crush me, then I will not crush myself. I will not put myself down. I will not snuff myself out. If he doesn't do that, I won't do it. I won't work con 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 you know, counter or contrary to what he does. I won't oppose him. He wants to straighten me up and he wants to heal me so I bear fruit again. He wants to fan me into flame. I'm not going to get in his way by snuffing myself out. If Jesus doesn't crush me, I will not crush myself. You know, one of the most helpful things anyone has ever said to me in sort of a counseling context, a pastoral care context where I have gone to receive pastoral care, support, advice, whatever, counsel, one of the most useful things is when people just, when I say about how I feel about something or what way I think about it or what way I view it, is when a person says to me, well, how would Jesus respond to that? The way that you view yourself, is that the way Jesus views you? The way that you feel because of that thing, do you think Jesus wants you to feel like that? And those wee moments where, where, where someone just comes and shines the light, this is how Jesus sees this. Don't you be looking at it differently. Those are really helpful moments. If Jesus doesn't crush me, I will not crush myself. The fourth and final thing about this servant is that the servant will suffer. The servant will suffer. Isaiah 42 verse 4 just gives a hint that when this servant comes to establish justice, there's going to be a bit of opposition. It says at the start of verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice. In other words, there are going to be those who will try to make him falter, and there will, go, there will be those who will try to discourage him. Why is it that we do not have justice in the world? Why do we not have God's right way in society? It's because back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve 
chose independence from God, chose not to rely on him for their life and everything they need, and they lost their right relationship with God, and they hid from the Lord God. And their ability to think properly about themselves was lost. They started to become fearful and ashamed. Those aren't emotions that God wanted them to have about themselves. Their relationships with each other were not right. Like where does all social breakdown stem from? It stems from that garden with a man and a woman who chose to live independently of God. Their bodies started to break down and death invaded creation. All of it comes. The lack of justice, the lack of God's right way in the world is all a result of sin. And therefore, in Isaiah 42, what this servant is going to do is open the eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. According to Barry Webb, in short, the servant will undo, listen to this, he will undo all the horrendous and degrading effects that sin has had on the human race and will restore to people their true freedom and dignity as sons and daughters of God. That's what the servant will do. Just that. (laughs) He will undo all the horrendous and degrading effects of sin. But how will he do it? Verse 4 says, In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. Let's compare verses 3 and 4, because there's a few words that you need to see that you don't see in English. In verse 3, where it says a bruised reed, in Hebrew it's the same word as verse 4, which says discouraged. And in verse 3, where it talks about the smoldering wick not being snuffed out, it's the same word as in verse 4, where it says he will not falter. And according to Tim Keller, who's brilliant on this, he says the servant will experience the same things that we do. He will be bruised, he will be crushed, he will be snuffed out, but it won't stop him from bringing about justice on the earth. It will not stop him. And when we go back to Genesis 3, and you'll see a word now, and the light will go on, you'll see a word from Genesis 3 that we've seen already. God preaches the gospel to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. After the fall, he says to the serpent about an offspring from the woman. And he says to the serpent, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Bruise. And in the past, I've sometimes read that and thought, well, big deal. (laughs) You know, a bruise on the heel. But it is a big deal. You will bruise his heel. That's the cross. Where Jesus was bruised. Where Jesus himself was crushed. A death blow was meted out to him on our behalf. And Isaiah writes another song a wee bit later in this section. And he says in the other song in Isaiah 53, you probably know it, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. 
The promise from Genesis 3 that one will be bruised. And in the process of him bruising, he will crush the serpent's head. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. And please, please, please do not apply that to physical sickness. That's about sin. And it's a bigger deal than being sick. By his wounds, he was wounded for our transgressions. That's sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's sin. And by his wounds, we are healed from sin. (laughs) And all of the effects that it has on humanity. The servant who is a king will suffer. He will be bruised in order that he can then deal with our bruises. And this servant that comes into an ancient world where kings would trample over everybody to establish their idea of justice, according to John Oswald, God's answer to the oppressors of this world is not more oppression, nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance. Rather, in quietness, humility, and simplicity, he will take all of the evil into himself, bruised heel. The serpent bit the heel. The poison came into him. He will take all of the evil into himself and return only grace. That is par. (laughs) Boom. That is par. He took our bruises, so that matter, no matter how bruised we are, instead of breaking us or snuffing us out, Jesus sends his spirit, straightens us up that we can bear fruit, fans us into flame that we can burn and bring light. This servant of Isaiah 42 will bring justice. He is also the king. He knows how to restore the human heart. He will suffer. Boy, Isaiah could pack them in. (laughs) Three or four verses. There's class stuff in the rest of the chapter, but we can't do it. But one of the things that happens in response to this this first presentation of the servant is in verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. (laughs) There is a demand put on people. Now praise him. Praise him as he is worthy of praise. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that you give us, Lord, in the dark times. I pray for the bruised reeds in this place who are cracked and bent over and in their own strength will not be able to get upright once again. I pray, Father, for those dimly smoking wicks, the tiniest glow, and they're fearful that you're just going to lick your fingers and snuff them out. I pray, Jesus, that they will see the servant who does not do that, who will instead fan into flame once again. I pray, Father, for those who have a tendency to crush themselves We all do it from time to time. I pray, Father, that they will learn not to crush themselves because you don't crush them. 
We just thank you for this lovely picture of Jesus, the servant, the one whom we await in Advent, in the dark. Thank you for this encouragement, Lord. I just pray your people will be built up and will be strengthened, Lord, as they meditate on these few verses. In Jesus' name, amen.